1: Thank you. My brother will not be joining us today. He's uh indisposed at the moment. Uh I know you're expecting a comedy duo. I mean, uh, you know, you, we don't need my brother here. We got, we got good old James. I know the newspapers call Paul the funny one and, and call me the wishy-would-be-quiet one, but I'm half of this duo. I can do it. All right, well, I came up with a great new act for you all so that you can enjoy what used to be paul and james but is now james and wooden james say hi wooden james yeah yeah what's up how's it going wooden
2: james it's going fine if I wasn't attached to such a thinking failure
1: wow uh (laughs) well i know uh that kind of humor is funny in some places but it's i don't know if it's gonna land on this show it's gonna land just fine as good as you'll land when
0: I push you out the window.
1: Jesus. All right. Well, look, I don't want any trouble, Wooden James. You're my pal, after all. I mean no pal of yours. Well, okay. Well, why don't we show these folks a good trick, then? Yeah, whatever. All right. Well, uh, how about I take a, a drink of this old, this old drink right here, and you can, you can talk all you want. You didn't say anything, Wooden James.
2: Yeah, I know. Not much
3: to say.
1: How about a joke, then?
3: Your life is a joke. Stop stop, stop. stop.
1: Fine, folks. A joke. Why don't you tell them a joke? All right. All
2: right. I'll tell them a good joke. You like the white strips and and all that. Okay. What's the one white stripe song I wish
1: would happen? Uh, I, I don't know. Woody or Wooden James, whatever the hell I called you. What is the one white stripe song you wish would happen?
2: it's called jimmy the exploder uh, get it cuz you're jimmy your name is james and i wish you'd explode i okay i'm putting you i'm putting
1: you down i'm you're going back in the
2: box you can't stop me i'll always be here
1: i'll always be here all right well wooden james is back in the box but we're going to go on with the show welcome to the third man podcast it's a jack white history podcast and i know you can't really tell that based off this really really dumb skit uh normally my brother paul is here with me today we have wooden james he's not as good uh he'll be back next episode if this is your first time listening i very much apologize but this is a show where we normally talk about jack white history and movies and music and albums and people in the third man records world and do interviews today we are doing the third in our series of Best of episodes while Paul is away, and oh, we got a good one! Oh, it's it's so good. This is another best of interview special for you all. This week we have lined up two of our amazing interviews from this past year. The super talent that is Mick Collins of the Gories and the Dirt Bombs, and a whole slew of other projects. We have that interview on here for you, and we also have for you guys the The interview we did with Jim Diamond from the of Sonics, the Dirt Bombs, producer of some White Stripes albums, he is an amazing talent. We loved having him on, uh, so you guys are gonna love that. So you guys can just sit back, enjoy, and uh, let's get this started. Yeah, let's get this started. All right, enough of you wooden James. All right, let's let's go. Let's get let's get into it. We'd like to welcome our third man for this week, Jim
0: Diamond. Uh, it's just hitting me that I'm talking with Jim Diamond right now. Holy sh! Uh, welcome to the show, Jim.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We have many questions, many,
3: many, many <laughs> questions. Not a problem. <laughs>
1: Folks at home listening know that you have a long
0: musical career, and obviously you were there sort of at the birth of the White Stripes, and, and so we'll, we'll sort of get to that in a little bit, but I kind of wanted to start with your own musical influences growing up. You're a multi-instrumentalist, you're a singer, you're a songwriter, but who were the people that inspired you when you were a kid to want to pursue music as a career?
3: Oh, when I was a little kid, um, I was born in 1965, so I started get recognizing music, like being conscious of good music when I was about... Four or five I you mean, know, I had their older kids Down the street And they had They played Beatles records For me They played <laughs> Led Zeppelin They played Steppenwolf They played Jefferson Airplane They played uh, You know All the hard rock And the, I heard all this stuff And CCR That was another one is huge Nice I loved CCR When I was four years old So Cool I was pretty lucky I uh, you know had the older kids and um, and my grandmother would I'd say hey can you buy me this uh, can you get me fortunate son by CCR and she would she would buy me these 45s I still have them She'd buy That's me awesome. these 40, I, 45s and I remember I really liked uh, the shocking blue you know in 1970 right mm-hmm. Influence were the Beatles when I was good.
0: What's your sweet spot for Beatles? Um, Everybody's got one except for me and my monkey, so come on.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'd say I don't know. I mean, I like some stuff post Revolver, but my favorite Beatles stuff is pre Sgt. Peppers. Then they start to lose me after that. But I like all the early stuff, and I like the mid-60s stuff. But, you know, it was was all that stuff. I heard it, and I loved it, and uh, I just felt like... Wow, you know, even as a little kid. So,
1: so through those musical influences, you picked up many instruments and many different kinds of songwriting techniques. Which instrument did you pick up first? Was it uh, you know guitar, bass? Did you sing first? What was the first
3: thing you gravitated towards? My parents had a home organ. Oh, you know, this is back in the day, and I would fool around. You know, and I took, I'd figure out the chords, and I was probably seven or eight, and I started figuring. I never learned how to play it well, but I, I would, I learned the chords. I knew what all the notes were, and. Uh, then I wanted to play guitar I was about eight. And my parents got me a little classical guitar, and I took some classical guitar nice. lessons. And ah. Then I played the saxophone. Yeah, saxophone came up when I was about 10. That was school band. <laughs> uh, uh, you were a busy kid. <laughs> I just wanted to play. And then, uh, you know, there was more guitar lessons. And then uh, I remember a kid down the street said, Hey, man, we're going to start a band. We need a bass player. And I was probably yeah. 13, 12 or 13. I said... Hey, I want a bass, I told my dad. And he said, <laughs> well, you know, I'll buy you a bass, but you got to mow the lawn. I had to do, it was like a summer of lawn mowing. <laughs> oh, my God. To pay off the bass. Oh, man. And um, I did it, and he bought me the bass.
1: So you said, to hell with that, I'm not going to be a bass bass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like every story of every person who plays bass is somebody asked – that they needed a bassist. And I said, I guess I'll have to pick up the bass now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, I I actually wanted to play the bass. I actually wanted to, because I, I mean, I played the guitar and the bass simultaneously for years. Mm. So it was like both. And uh, I would go, sometimes I'd play bass in a band. Sometimes I'd play guitar, but I was more, Mm. I guess I was more of a natural on the bass really
0: yeah i mean and also if your musical so. influences were 60s acts and, and early 70s stuff like jack bruce paul mccartney like there's a lot of famous bass players coming out of that era so it probably didn't hurt to have those people to to look to
3: no i mean and all the motown stuff i heard too growing up in detroit i mean oh, yeah. that was you just heard that all the time so you heard james jamerson i mean mm-hmm. from uh, as a little kid you're indoctr- indoctrinated with uh, motown on the radio right
1: Yeah, I'm sure that was surrounding you all, all the time at oh, that it point surrounding in, you. in history, you know, Motown was... Yeah. Yeah, it was everywhere.
0: Yeah, but, definitely. So when did you start writing songs? Was it around that same time? or I guess that sort of goes hand in hand with what your sort of early band iterations were, because we, I guess we all kind of have those really early band iterations. <laughs> but I'm wondering when you, when the songwriting started for you.
3: Probably sometime in high school. I think I had, I had, a, I had a girlfriend and I wrote a song. Mm-hmm. I remember I wrote a, I probably like the first good song, I was like 17, and I wrote a song influenced by this, this girlfriend I had, and uh, that came out pretty good. I, I, we actually did a recording of it uh, later on. Oh, nice. But um, yeah, I started probably some, I mean, I'm not, I don't consider myself a songwriter at all. I don't sit around and work on my craft. I, right. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like, eh, I'll write something. And, but it's, it's not often. I don't work at it. It just kind of happens. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't.
0: What was the song?
3: If you don't mind me asking, you said you did a recording of it. It was called "I Want to Love You, but I Can't Not Right Now." Okay, <laughs> I think it's on. <laughs> I think it's on the. I made a recording in college. Recording in the I had to span the beat of Sonics that you meant that well, yeah, you mentioned, yeah. We did a recording of it. Yeah, something I wrote when I was 17. Nice, That's awesome.
1: That's a lot more successful than the song I wrote about a girl I liked. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw that
0: thing you do and said, Oh, that can't be that hard. Uh, and, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was spent an afternoon furiously <laughs> scribbling.
3: I was into hardcore punk rock a lot back in the early 80s we go downtown to shows. No, that was a lot of fun. That was always a lot of fun. I had to sneak out because my mom was, you know, don't go to that punk rock show. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Was that
0: the scene was it primarily punk rock stuff?
3: There was a lot. I mean, there was so much going on, but you know, we were kids. I mean, we did our own bands too. I had a band in high school with some friends of mine and uh called the the Neoplastics after the Neoplastics nice plasticism art movement of the 20s and but we we ended we were playing Ramones covers you know we were doing stuff like that you know we were just having fun we weren't we weren't art rockers at all
0: (laughs) shout out to my high school band Torch (laughs) (laughs) So let's get the list. Here. So we're sort of covering you growing up here, and and before we sort of skip ahead to '92 with the of Sonics, what's the progression of the groups? So were there groups prior to the of Sonics, and what were they?
3: Oh yeah, there was a there was a band um, when I was in college. We were called the Way Outs. and uh, very nice. We wrote some songs. It was just a three piece. I was playing guitar. It's a friend of mine on bass. Friend of mine on drums. And we would do half originals and then half like. I don't know, we do like these Mersey beat covers and we do these (laughs) 50s, but we do them at these blazing speeds, we play at house parties. we had this thing called rocket fuel that we would drink before the show and it's basically <laughs> old, that sounds terrible It's basically old, old crow old crow bourbon oh. mixed with uh pharmaceutical caffeine and mm. coca-cola and we would do shots of this and go play and it would just be a mess and we'd, wow. we'd play like all these old songs but just at these blistering speeds and we did some recording. We did some recordings. We released a live cassette called Trippin' with the Way outs And then we had another
1: <laughs> cassette. So you had the original Four Loco is what you did. Yeah. Uh, I, guess, I guess so, yeah.
3: This is about 80, 1987, 88, 87. <laughs> Yeah you know, then uh, the bass player and I Eric we moved to uh, Austin, Texas and that's where we did the Beat Sonics and I played another band I played bass in another band down there this guy named Herman the German Wow Look. Herman the German and and Das Cowboy and wow. Herman was yeah.
4: this,
3: He's this guy from uh, Belgium actually and he lived in Germany he immigrated to the US in the early 70s and uh, he would play all these like Gene Vincent songs and European instrumentals, like all these polkas, but at blistering <laughs> tempos as well. And he had a World War One cavalry outfit that he would play, in and a, with a spiked helmet and everything. And then the uh, marshal stack with the Iron Cross. I love this. And we would <laughs> play. And he's still around. He's he's like a sanitation worker in Austin. I mean, I still keep in touch with him. Got time for one more. This is
4: the encore, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> the tax to the box, that told me to stop in two minutes. I mean, <laughs>
3: bass for him I saw I saw him play once I said I want to be your bass player and I freaked him out and I did become his <laughs> bass player but it was uh, Herman the German and Das Cowboy
1: are we sure wow. this wasn't an art project by Werner Herzog like no. it seems
3: like <laughs> and then my friend Eric and I did our beat of sonics thing we were trying to do some kind of I don't, we didn't know what we were doing we were doing some kind of power pop ish 60s thing I don't know Yeah, we we were still kind of figuring out what to do, basically. Uh, It was when I moved back to Michigan. I had another band back there that was just for fun called, uh, stuff called the Pop-Tarts, another band called Mark Lansing and his Board of Water and Light. Oh, and we just man. did some, you know, just kind of old 60s covers, but those are a lot of fun. In that studio, I always felt that's where I learned what producing was. Mm-hmm. That's where I kind of figured out what I was doing at that point in my life. I remember it was like a light bulb went off. I said, oh, oh this wow. is what to do. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd say that was probably 93, 94.
1: Well, you've produced uh, over a hundred albums. What keeps you inspired to keep getting back into that producer's chair
3: oh it's just i don't know when i hear a band that sounds halfway interesting it just comes to you naturally i just i hear it i mean people will want to do anything they'll just say, oh i have this idea i have this idea i have this idea right and i remember when i worked with the sonics what they told me they said the best thing you did producing us is tell us what not to do mm. yeah right right exactly <laughs> yeah you and gotta I tell said, them yeah. when they're f***ing up you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, or one. No, that's gonna. That's you say. No, that's that's gonna sound ridiculous. No, you know, <laughs> right. that's turn off the chorus pedal. No, no, no. So it's more. It's a lot of times it's more no than. Hey, I have this idea. It's <laughs> sure. like no, sure. don't do that. <laughs>
0: You engineered and co-produced the White Stripes self-titled debut album. How did you get to know Jack and Meg? I assume you're back from Austin by this point in time. You're, you're steeped in Detroit. What were the circumstances that brought you guys together?
3: Oh, it was just hanging out. You know, everyone would uh, go to the Gold Dollar, this bar mm-hmm. in Detroit you've probably heard mentioned. Um, yes. Yeah, that's, I think I saw their first show there in 98 yeah. or something or 97. Yeah. I don't remember. Uh, but yeah, I saw that.
4: A lot. Let's bore you for a couple more here. Um, this one's uh, Jimmy. Let's do that. Okay.
3: dollar and uh, another place the uh, the magic stick and the garden Bowl. Right, right and those were really close to my studio that was you know mm. a few a few yeah, blocks Ghetto from recorders. yeah where yeah. the studio was so you'd just see people and hang around and I did some records and I did my I think one of the first bands I did was the the first band official release out of Ghetto recorders was a two piece from Detroit called Bantam Rooster mm. right yes. Mm and that was that was the first 2 piece out of detroit Record upstairs. I did half of a henchman record uh, mm-hmm. called Motorvatin', and that was a live party at the studio. We had a keg of beer, and we had a live party <laughs> in the studio with about 50 people, and uh, made that was the record, or half the record. So you just kind of knew everyone, and people would hang out, and right. you know, didn't make just, work at the Garden Bowl. I think she, I think she did, yeah, at some point. Yeah, I'm sure she did.
1: You didn't spike that keg with uh, some some cough syrup or caffeine or anything, <laughs> did you? No, <laughs> I, I,
3: my my pharmaceutical caffeine days were long behind me. Okay. <laughs>
0: So there's a scene going on. In retrospect, they sort of call it this garage rock scene. I don't know. I, that scene that always seems a little disingenuous to me. I always think of it more as like a like a blues revival or something. Like, a, like I always call it, like, the Stooges blues revival or something. But that scene evolved, obviously. And but by the way, it was 97, that first show. Okay. Oh, okay. Which happened to just have been released as, like, a sort of mini-EP celebration of the 20th anniversary. But how did that scene evolve, and what did it evolve from? Because I know there was that cowpunk sort of movement and things. And how did we get to the, quote, garage rock revival?
3: I don't know. I mean, I, I came back into... Detroit and started working with bands in about 95 and I was working in another studio in a suburb and I was doing working with a band called Bootsy X and the Love Masters Mm -hmm. and they were doing they were doing a you know rock and roll like 60s kind of rock and roll but doing it very well and uh, that's where I met Mick Collins Mm. and he came in the studio to pick up a record or something from the singer And I had just started this little studio. My I I moved in downtown Detroit, and my friend had a little eight track reel to reel. And there were, you know, I said, "Hey, John, can I, you know, can I get a band up here? You mind if I uh, use your stuff? Right. I'm going to charge like twenty bucks an hour. I'll give you ten. I'll take ten. And um, sure. So there were bands. You know, then I saw saw the Henchmen. I don't know how it evolved, but I, I remember I saw the Henchmen in '96, and I went up to them and said. I want to record you guys. This is amazing because I hadn't seen bands like this, and uh, I. But I don't know how they evolved. I think they were just doing what they, you know, the people in Detroit. Everyone I knew, they were just doing music that they liked. Mm-hmm. that they what they listened to, really.
0: So much like production style, it was less a conscious effort and more of a natural sort of instinct.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a conscious effort at all. It's people just doing records that they liked, like the Detroit Cobras. When I first saw them and heard their 45s that they put out in 1995 or 96, they were just doing records that they, you know, covering songs that they liked. Yeah. And that's basically what it was. No one thought about anything except, hey, let's make a band, let's, uh, I like this song, hey, you want to do this song by Nathaniel Mayer? Okay, great. And then just moved on from there.
1: So did you just approach Jack and Meg and say you guys want to record a little bit, maybe put out an LP, or how did that come about?
3: I I don't remember, really. I don't know if they got their deal with Sympathy, and then Jack approached me, or if I approached him at some point and said, hey, I have this little studio, because I think in 96, seven. At the beginning, I was just had my buddy's eight track and a little 12 channel mixer. And uh, then I got a 16 track and a bigger mixing board. And I don't remember if I approached them or, you know, he approached me after he got his thing with sympathy. I don't don't remember.
0: Okay. Was a sympathy contact a buzz? Like were people talking about, oh, Jack got a Record. I mean, Long Gone John wasn't exactly, you know, Warner Music or something, but like, that must have been kind of cool that one of those, oh, one of those yeah. groups got picked up.
3: Yeah, because I mean, our Bantam Rooster, um, Crypt Records put them out. Okay. And yeah. then Sympathy did Bantam Rooster as well. And then. Okay did uh, the White Stripes and uh, I don't remember who else he did from Detroit well then he put out Long Gone put out that uh, Sympathetic Sounds of Detroit uh, record but that was later like 2001 I think something like that yeah but, um, yeah, right. oh, yeah, of course, if, hey, you know, got a record deal. We got a, you know, it's not, a, it's not a deal. It's not Warner Brothers, yeah. but it was yeah. someone paying for the record. That's amazing.
0: Right. What did you think about, like, from what we've heard, people knew Jack from other groups. Obviously, they knew him from Two Star Tabernacle on the go. And obviously, he had played with Goober and the Peas. And he had been doing all of these sort of oddball kind of gigs and then suddenly he brings you know his girlfriend then wife onto the stage and and he starts making this art piece around her and they become this thing what were your impressions of that were you skeptical at first or were were you more like oh okay that's an interesting sound because obviously knowing them and knowing the scene it must have you had a different perspective than most on that
3: i was skeptical yeah Okay, yeah, like, right. I I was skeptical. I'm like, oh, what are they doing? You know, I, I didn't. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it was it was charming. It was charming in its in its way. Sure. It was cute. You know, they had their, you know, other people weren't doing any kind of outfits. I mean, people in Detroit were more like get on stage with the clothes you walked in with.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure,
3: sure. No one was wearing red and white pants or anything. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So that, you know, it was, it was a unique thing and I, but I thought oh man what the hell is she doing she's got to learn how to play those drums
4: but, <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> but you know it's just a natural reaction as a musician you know but, I, but it, it was interesting and yeah you know, I thought oh, that's you know that's good
1: yeah they skirted the line of acting like kids being charming whereas it could have really skewed into creepy real quick but they they managed <laughs> to keep with with charming at least from what i could tell um, right
3: yeah i i agree
1: you know you had pulled in some people to play on their first record including a soledad brother johnny walker to play slide guitar on suzy lee and i fall piranhas which wound up turning into one of like the the signature sounds of the group right right so whose idea was it to put slide on those tracks
3: i I, that was discussed between the johnny and jack okay they just came in yeah johnny's gonna play some slide and you know that was just okay cool nice yeah they'd work that out on their own
1: Any insight into this, but is it true that Johnny taught Jack slide guitar during those sessions?
3: I never saw anything like that. Okay, maybe when he was in town over at his house, but no, I you know they weren't sitting in the studio. Okay, now you do it like this, (laughs) and you sound like Elmore James. No, it's not. I I didn't see anything like that.
0: What was the vibe of those sessions? I mean, I think like most of their records, it was recorded fairly quickly. But what was the vibe there? Did you find Jack open to collaboration? Was he curious about technique and technology and stuff, or were you really helming that?
3: Well we just I remember we talked at times uh because where we, we put the mic, he's like, ah, it sounds too much like it's in the studio. I said, well, you are in a studio. So <laughs> I said, all right, here's, here's what we're going to do. So I had this old tape recorder from 1953, okay. and it has an input and a little speaker. Yeah. I, and, and I'd use this with uh, doing some dirt bombs. I always use this little thing to sing through. I said, now oh, let's just sing through this. So that's the vocal sound on that record, is singing through this little tape recorder, then miking the tape recorder. Wow And I've done that I've used that on a lot of records That's like That little tape recorder Is one of my secret weapons I love that thing The sound and then the sound of the room with a heavy compression on the vocal. And, yeah, you know, Jack was just singing through a 50 through like a sure 57 wow. plugged into this tape recorder, And I mic the tape recorder
1: so is that what caused the reverb because i know that album especially has a little more reverb than many of his later ones did that have anything to do with it
3: no, well the reverb is a combination of uh i don't remember if there was any on his amp he used he had that silver tone and he had silver tone i think he had a twin mm-hmm. and then i had a spring I, I did what's called a spring reverb in the studio it's a a company called tapco mm-hmm. from the 70s mm-hmm. it's a tapco spring reverb and that's on the all over that record that's that that's that yeah crappy reverb sound you
0: hear, wow yeah it's like the it instead of the wall of sound it, it, it sometimes comes across as like the wall of noise, but in like a good way in like yeah like, a good way I feel like your task in that situation was largely how do I fill out this sound because they have been playing at that point, i guess for about a year or so, maybe a year and change, but you know meg is very much still learning on that first record so i I imagine that you would have had to have found places to either embellish or craft what the overall sound of the thing was going to be, you know?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was trying to make uh, the drum sounds be as, it's kind of, I had a big room to work in mm-hmm. the studio back in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had used a lot of ambient miking to kind of like just make everything big and trashy but still have a lot of, sure. <laughs> have the bottom, have, the, have a good bottom, because there's just a two-piece, but, you know, I'd worked with two pieces before, so I, it was kind of fun to do it that way.
0: I had read that uh, that there was a school bell used on one of the tracks. Is, do you remember which one that was? Was that Broken Bricks?
3: Yeah, that had the ding, de ding, de ding, 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 Yeah. Yeah, that was this bell that Jack brought over. He said, "Now I want to put the bell on here." I said, "Okay." <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, Meg, I want you to play this bell like a caveman. Any other memories of what that experience was like, and were you happy with the final product when it was finally all finished and mixed and everything? Did you listen to that and go, "I have something here," or was it still more like a curiosity as to the trajectory of that band?
3: Oh no, no. When yeah, as as we were making it, yeah, I thought, yeah, this is this is sounding really good. Sure. You know, it was just it was just that the tracking was a little tedious because at times you know Meg would drop a stick. <laughs> we should get off time. You know that that took that was the most time consuming part was just getting through the basics because they they would play the basic parts live in the studio the guitar and the drums. Mm-hmm. And I think we did some vocals live as well. If you if you listen to some of the things, I can I think they just I had a little PA system in the studio and I think Jack sang some vocals through the PA and then overdubbed the vocals later, so you can hear a little bit of a ghost in the background. <laughs> Uh um, wow. just bleeding through the room mics. I I can hear it because I know what I'm listening for. Yeah. But, right.
4: yeah. <laughs> the ideas made me wanna spit. A hundred dollars goes down the pit. Thirty thousand wheels are rolling And my six-shit hands are swollen. Everything involved is shady. The big three kill my baby. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Wow. After the album was finished, or even during, did you have any contact at all with Long Gone John from Sympathy? Because he seems like a guy whose reputation precedes him, and people would would definitely have some stories about. So I don't know if you had any memories or anything about dealing with him.
3: <laughs> no, I, I always I always loved Long Gone. He was he was great. He's like you know this eccentric curmudgeon, <laughs> but I, I always I got along with him great. Um, I was dating a woman in Los Angeles in 2000, so I'd go out there, and she knew Long Gone as well, so I ended up at a Sizzler once in of Long Beach with Long Gone, because I think he lived in Long Beach, yeah, I think, yeah, we were at a Sizzler, we like we had a double date, and it was just funny, I mean, he, he had his, I don't know if he had a wig on or what, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a funny guy, now he's got along with him, well, I haven't seen him in years and years but um yeah. only only good memories he that's good. he never crossed me
0: that's good <laughs> i mean he seems like a like a sort of a lovable criminal or something like he's like the <laughs> kind of guy he's like he's always got a scheme going but he's like ah look at it like he, he seems like a, like a savvy shaggy from scooby-doo or something like
3: uh yeah yeah that's
0: there's a great documentary about him that's that's just eye-opening <laughs>
3: I haven't. No, I haven't seen. I have to look for this. I haven't seen this.
0: Yeah, it's called "The Treasures of Long Gone John." Available now on Amazon, and I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh,
3: okay, I will. I will look for this. I want to see this.
0: <laughs> you and the Stripes—that relationship. I mean, you really. Put a big stamp on their initial sort of sound there. Were you surprised at all of the direction that they would wind up going? Did you keep up with Jack's records as they were coming out? What's your take on the evolution of that band?
3: It's what's natural to me, you know, if they they got really popular, so great, you know, good for them. Right. Um, but yeah, it was just like a natural thing. I'm most, you know, people were happy for them that they, they got the success they did. Right, right. You know, uh, yeah, sound wise, their evolution, I mean, I never. I'd, I'd hear, I'd hear you know, the popular songs mm-hmm. on their to sure. records. And that was about it. But, you know, it seemed like a normal progression to me.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of popularity, there I mean, there was a big focus on Detroit at that time. And not just with the, quote, garage rock scene, but also with, you know, like, right around the turn of the millennium, you had Eminem out of there, you had Kid Rock out of there, you had a lot of different people blowing up in a very mainstream sort of way. And the other project you worked on, much in the same way. For instance, Danger High Voltage by the Electric Six, which you produced and play saxophone on the aforementioned saxophone. from earlier. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, do you uh, do you have any standout memories uh, to share about that session?
3: I think we did that in one night or something because it was it was, <laughs> okay. it, was a, it was a forty-five for a, a, my. My friends uh, Andy and Patty uh-huh. had a label in Ypsilanti, Michigan called Flying Bomb. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And it was a 45 It was a 45 for Flying Bomb. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was the, I mean, if you have that, go look for that 45. Yeah. Probably press like 100. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm very familiar with the Flying Bomb Christmas records, but now I will definitely oh, yeah. look out for the Electric Six stuff, which I didn't know was on there.
3: Yeah, that was just like, that was just supposed to be a joke. <laughs> um, and came over because I, I was recording the Electric Six back when they were the Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. We did a bunch of recordings at that point in the early two thousands, and uh, yeah. And then I don't know how the saxophone came up. And I, had, my roommates had a saxophone. I said, Oh you know, I can play this." Okay. And then they said, "Oh, what do you want? To, we're going to credit you as Bill Clinton." I said, "Fine." I, cause it was just a joke. It was just a joke. It was going to be a forty five with a hundred <laughs> copies pressed. And I don't yeah. remember what the. Flip side of the 45 is. But yeah, I mean, they just, uh, you know, it's literally done in an evening. And then I probably mixed it the next morning.
4: High voltage! When we touch! When we kiss! Danger! Danger! High voltage! When we touch! When we kiss! When we touch! Danger! Danger! High voltage! When we touch! When we kiss! Danger, danger. High voltage. Oh, when we touch, when do we kiss? When we touch, why do we care.
1: They seem like a pretty well-humored band. I mean, also on that album that Danger High Voltage appears on, Gay Bar is also on there, which is a fantastic song as well, and definitely well-humored for sure. But yeah, I definitely enjoy that band and enjoy that song in particular, to which the saxophone plays a huge role in, which is great.
3: It's great. <laughs> well, I, tri- I, t- I tried my hardest. I think the B-side is I Lost Control of My Rock and Roll. Oh, that could be. Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember any details about it but I remember I remember the name. Well yeah, I remember that song or the the Danger Danger High Voltage. I remember shortly after Flying Bomb released it, I was on tour with the Dirt Bombs and we were in the UK. We were in England mm-hmm. and people said, "Oh, yeah, they're playing this in clubs over here. They're playing this in <laughs> dance clubs." I said, "Really?" And yeah, that's how that's basically how the Electric 6 got their Got their, you know, all of a sudden because the white stripes were Mm -hmm. taken off, and then this happened, and that was becoming this club hit. Because I remember talking to people in London. They said, "Oh, you did that! You did that!" Who's Bill Clinton? I said, "I'm Bill Clinton." (laughs) (laughs) I I, I wish I'd used my real name.
1: (laughs) Speaking of pseudonyms, Uh,
0: yeah. Well, Jack White's singing voice has been described often as a rock and roll Ethel Merman. Um, That (laughs) is him on there, right?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Doing some, I don't know. We just they just sang it. He and Tyler and just <laughs> sang it, and that was that. Okay, great.
1: In in interviews, uh, they never claim it's Jack White, but they claim that it could be.
3: I will tell you that it is.
1: Okay, great. Exclusive here, <laughs> folks. um Yeah, it's exclusive. You mentioned the Dirt Bombs, which you joined in 1997, and you stayed with that group for a lot of years, actually. Was joining that band a a natural fit? How was playing with the Dirt Bombs?
3: Well, that was, uh, I met Mick in 96 when I was working at this other studio in Detroit. And then when I met him there, I said, hey, you know, I have this little 8-track set up in downtown Detroit and this big... Cement room. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to? You know, I'll charge you like twenty five bucks an hour. And he had some money. He's like, Yeah, I got to do a dirt bombs record. He did do the first dirt bombs record, which is called uh, Horn Dog Fest. And so he came down, and we did it on eight on an eight on this eight track. So we had like one drum set on one track, the other drum set on another track, then the fuzz bass, the regular bass, and the guitar, and then a track for vocals and percussion or whatever. And then he and I got to be, you know, I got to, we got to be friends just doing that record. And then uh, the bass player left. He moved to San Francisco, and mm. so after that, then Mick said, "Oh, you want to play?" I said, "Yeah, man, I'll play bass." <laughs> so that's just just happened. Nice. so we started doing some gigs and yeah just kind of evolved from there and then uh so basically on all those recordings like the band would come in and play and then mick and i would finish everything <laughs> the, no, sure. the band was never there i would just mix it by myself right you know it was just the band would come in play we do we do most of it live and then everyone would leave and then mick would come over and then we'd overdub whatever it'd just be so it was mostly he and i we'd finish everything. Yeah. And, uh, right. So it's always he and I collaborating on that stuff, which it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah.
4: the whims of every red, red, boy. So long lashes the, the secrets of the universe. Tina must the world of false Tina oh, Tina. the world is overrun with pretenders to your almighty throne.
0: Talk about dream jobs, like just you being able to play with a band and then craft a piece of art from it afterwards with another like-minded musician that sounds like a blast
3: (laughs) oh yeah we had we had a lot of fun because it was just we'd just come up with an idea let's try this let's try that just like let's put the mic through this crappy amp let's (laughs) use this you know radio at this point like you know it was just it was just mick and i messing around
0: yeah you know having fun it's like a good ideas time, though. You know, a lot of inspiration from like minded artists being bounced around. The Dirt Bombs had, you know, somewhat of a revolving cast. I had read that Patrick Keeler had played a stint with them. Did, did your pads ever cross?
3: You know, I remember Patrick, but yeah, I don't. I we never played together. Mm-hmm. I don't okay. know. Uh, I don't know when he. Maybe he did at some point, but I, I, I don't remember.
1: I find it interesting. I always liked listening to to different Dirt Bombs records because you can tell the musical progression.
3: Well, yeah, because everything we we always did everything. It was a different approach to every. I I, I preferred actually when when uh, I was doing stuff with the Dirt Bombs. I preferred all the singles that we did because they were all just different and fun and I mean we did a cover, we did a Bee Gees cover for an Australian <laughs> tour 45 I said hey Meg, wow. hey, let's do a, I started a joke and I said yeah, I'll, I'll play uh, I'll play acoustic and you I played acoustic guitar and uh, mix, I'm singing the chorus through a Leslie organ speaker and you know it's just ridiculous and that's was the fun part about it
4: I started to cry we started the whole world laughing But if I'd only seen That the joke was on me
1: I know the appetite for Detroit music at that point was really high in Europe, especially Germany and Belgium and some Scandinavian countries. Did you do a lot of touring over there, or did you typically stay stateside?
3: Oh No, no, no. We went to... uh i had a lot of fun touring in europe i mean the first time i went with the dirt bombs we went to this club in uh, Groningen, holland mm-hmm. and that was 98 and they flew us over for the mm. they they remodeled the club they had a reopening and they flew the dirt bombs over just for one gig
1: and, <laughs> wow yeah that was wow. the first
3: yeah they, we flew over for one gig and then i stayed over you know stayed in europe i'm like wow i'm in europe <laughs> and um, stay for stay for five more days mm. But yeah, they flew us over right. there Just to play one gig And then, yeah, we went back And um, yeah, it was always a lot of fun Went to Australia I went to Australia with them two times And uh, that was a blast And yeah, the European tours And always a good time Very good
1: Moving to another band entirely, The Go, their album "What Do Doin', as well as their unreleased Free Electricity album. They were recorded and engineered by you at Ghetto Recorders. How did you meet that band and or Bobby Harlow? He seems to share a lot of common musical influence with you, for sure, as far as classic 60s pop and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, you guys are both Beatle yeah. guys, right? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was just one of those things. You're just hanging out. I remember seeing The Go's first uh, show at the Magic Stick. Mm-hmm. I think Bobby shaved his eyebrows and had a dog collar on. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously,
1: that seems like him. Uh, yeah. From everything I've read, uh, he he seems like the type of person to do that. Yeah,
3: yeah. So at first I thought, oh man, this is a little put on. But you know, it, I enjoyed doing those. I remember, yeah, because Jack was in the band on the first record. Yeah, and so Matt Smith was actual the the producer, mm-hmm. and so Jack was doing all his all his solos. He's playing all the solos live as the band's recording. And then Jack says, well, I want to go back and overdub my solos. And then Matt said, no. You're, Matt said, no, you're not overdubbing the solos. Those were great, and they got in a fight about it. Oh my god. Because he, he He's like, well, I didn't, pl- I didn't play them very well. And I don't remember how we resolved that, but yeah, he, he played all the solos live.
0: aside that is a tradition that continues with him to all the way up to his most recent records so we talked to um, fats kaplan and dominic davis about his lazaretto album and fats has this great story of where jack is like hey i want you to play this fiddle solo and fats is like great does the fiddle solo he's like all right now overdub it do it again on top of your old one and fats is like what are you talking about that was completely off the cuff he's like don't care. Do it. It's going to be great. So
3: that's a, that's a tradition that continues. He wanted to replace what he played, Oh, just he, completely, yeah, replace completely it. replace it. And the producer, Matt, said, No, you, it's captured great, it sounds great, perfect. I don't want you to touch this. And he didn't, he wanted to redo the solo to make it perfect.
1: The perfection might be why he wanted to redo it. He's like, If it sounded perfect, yeah, I can't exactly.
3: have that. <laughs> well, that was, yeah, that was that was Matt's interpretation of perfect, but I only had a 16 track, and I said, Hey, man, you know, we can't only have so many tracks here yeah so we can't be overdubbing guitar solos all day long but i don't remember how it was resolved did sub pop ever
1: interject while you were producing that album like i know that they had a hand in some of the sound of it in fact they told bobby and john at some point that they wanted to use the demo records or at least uh, that's what Bobby and John had said in interviews that they wanted to use some of the demo recordings instead of the the professional recordings. Did that ever come across your radar, or?
3: Well, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I think that I haven't I haven't heard that record in so long, but I think you know part of the record is recordings that were done at jack's house Hmm. and is i think part of the record is and i i mixed them because they we did the whole record in the studio and then i forgot all about this yeah then sub pop liked some of the demos better Mm -hmm. so part of the record actually is the i can't tell you what songs it's it's been so long but some of those songs are definitely recorded at jack's house with matt smith and Mm -hmm. then we just uh i think we mixed them at my studio
1: Wow! Yeah, I, that's
0: pretty awesome. I think James and I uh, agree we could talk to you for another four hours just about music and and all this. But but we we really appreciate you being so gracious with your time and for joining us today. It was an honor to talk to you. Uh, I was yes, you were such an influential force in the music that James and I love so much. So we want to thank you for all that you've done and for all that you'll continue to do and for talking to us today, Jim. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Oh, well, thank you very much. No, that means a lot. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: (laughs) You mentioned a website earlier where people can find all your stuff. What is that again for, for our listeners?
3: Well, there's a, there's a thing on SoundCloud. You can look up Jim Diamond. It's just songs of me. They're just my recordings of (laughs) myself and bands. I've been in just some, an assorted uh, assortment of uh, personal recordings on uh, Jim Diamond SoundCloud, mm.
0: so the Jim Diamond anthology will be called "The Songs of Me."
3: <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> haven't recorded anything. I got I got to make a new one. I'm I'm long overdue. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to it. Hey, thank you again, Jim. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep making great music. And thank you again for joining us today.
3: Hey guys, thanks for having mm. me. Awesome. We'll get back to the show. Jim Diamond, right?
1: Legend, amazing amazing guy great interview let's keep this train moving and uh let's uh get on to the headmaster of the dirt bombs sure the head i've been watching a lot of harry potter you guys it's it's on my brain the headmaster of the dirt bombs uh we've got mick collins such an amazing talent so let's let's get right into that interview let's get into it
4: star trek the next generation
1: welcome back kate
4: thanks guys it's fun to be back
1: we have you because you are a dirt bombs enthusiast i am certainly a dirt bombs enthusiast thank
0: you very much right. and to mick collins who is uh, who we've been tweeting at tonight hey you're always welcome on the show mick like we we'd like to have you on what
4: are you making a surprised face
0: paul what I are just you heard, doing i just heard from mick he says give me a number should I should I put the- should I put the number on the internet? Because that's what I'm gonna have to do. These aren't
1: private messages.
0: I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. This is probably a
1: mistake. Uh, I'm do it.
0: Yeah. I'm doing it. Do it. When i they get back into warp, our weapon is useless.
4: Safety be damned. Oh,
0: oh, oh. Hey, is this Mick? Hello?
2: Hi, this is Mick Collins.
0: Hey, Mick! Mr. Wolf. And now, the conclusion. Hi, this is Mick Collins. Hey, Mick! Thank you so much! We really appreciate no, uh, you. Thank you, thank you. Third day that I've been able to talk. Yeah, oh my god, that so, sounds so you're in luck. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here and we're glad you're talking. My god, can you sing? Is the real key question here.
2: Uh, it's a little shaky.
0: It's
2: a little weak right this minute, but hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll have built it back up again and I can get back in front of my microphone. Okay, that is
0: good to know. That is good to know. (laughs) James and Kate, you want to say hi here?
1: Hi, Nick. Howdy. How's it going, Mick? Good to talk to you. Thank you for calling us. That's super nice. Do you want to,
0: I mean, I know you're, I know it's late where you are and stuff, but... Uh, it's
2: like wanna... 10 o'clock. Don't even, don't even worry about it. Okay. I, the night is still young. I've only been up like three hours. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> do, well, Do you want to tell us a
0: little bit about your philosophy behind the band? What made you want to start this band that sort of started as a singles band and evolved from there? Can you give us a little background into your thinking behind this project?
2: Sure, sure. When the Gories were on tour in 1992, before we broke up... <laughs> home I'll form a band of my own because I actually hadn't had any thoughts of forming a band of my own. I thought I mean, I'll form a band of my own <laughs> and uh, so I started making some notes towards a band
4: uh-huh.
2: and um, and then you know the events of the next week or so happened and it was like, well maybe not ever again then it went I don't know I didn't think about it for a while, but then I thought, man, you know, as an art experiment, it would be kind of cool. To have a band, you know, and then I start and then, you know, different things happen. And the original idea for the Dirt Bombs was that I was going to make 15 four songs, seven inches okay. and then break the band up. Yeah. But while those records were coming out to make a bunch of flyers and stuff for shows that never happened. And then wait ten years, and then and then wait ten years, and then do a book on the experiences of people who swore they were at those shows.
1: <laughs> oh my oh God, man. that's amazing! Wow, that is genius.
2: <laughs> that is. Now, did With you get plan. did you
1: get around to doing any of those?
2: No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sidetracked briefly by the idea of trying to break the Guinness World Record for the most records released in a year, <laughs> P- currently being held by Psychic TV. Uh, they did 35 LPs in one year.
4: What? Wow.
2: Yeah. And Jesus. my plan before I found out how many records they cut was to, cu- I, 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 I took a seven inch record, held it vertically, and then I stacked more 45s against it till I had a cube. <laughs> <laughs> and that crazy. worked out to eighty-seven inches. Wow! And so then the plan uh... was going to make it, it was going to make eighty-seven inches, and that was going to be the plan. That was going to be the complete output of the band. And then as I started on that, Horndog Fest was originally a three-seven-inch package, uh-huh. um, and I started doing that. And then uh, in the Red Records, finally realized I was serious about making it all seven inches, and they balked at that.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, it became the it became the album. Wow. And then that was the beginning of the downward spiral into actually being a band as opposed to an art project.
0: Sure, sure. You're a comic book guy. Marvel did that with uh, a character called The Sentry, where they (laughs) talked about The Sentry as if it was this lost creation by Stan Lee from the Silver (laughs) Age just to whip people into a frenzy about this character who was really just sort of a superman knockoff and uh right. at, and it wound up getting all these legs and people got really interested in the sentry that's so funny that you that you had that idea before they did and <laughs> that's crazy that's really really cool and and we were talking a little bit about this notion that uh you know even Jack had experimented with the the idea of like doing a bunch of 45s and then you know, sort of having that just be the output, and then maybe compiling them later, maybe not. But yeah, it seems like
2: it, it always—it's it, it's a great idea, but it is a logistic impossible. It's almost impossible, logistically speaking. I won't say it is in- totally impossible. It's not totally impossible. but yeah. It is almost impossible yeah. at the level that I'm at and that Jack was previously at. Yeah, yeah. Jack could totally do it now.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm sure he could. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean. I'm game for calling the Guinness Book of World Records if you're still into the idea. We can can get this out.
2: Well, I actually, I had, when I had the idea, I started calling everybody I knew who had a record label at the time. And, you know, I I managed to get a dozen or more record labels interested. But for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, I I think my my idea was to get each one on a different label. And there just weren't 80 independent rock record labels at that time. (laughs) I think that was what happened there.
0: So long, gone. John didn't go for it, huh? He, he was. Oh, he
2: did. He was actually the first one to go for it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> but he was still speaking to me at that point.
1: Who's your superhero of choice?
2: Oh, I don't really have. It's funny, I don't actually have one. When I was a kid, oh, I could... actually I can tell you that as, as DC Comics goes, Green Lantern was my guy. Hey, there you go. Nice. I like. I read Green. My brother, my brother was heavy into. He liked Thor, and he liked. Captain America because of the Falcon, and um, Mm -hmm. and then I liked Least of Superheroes and Green Lantern. Yeah.
0: What's not to love about Space Cops, come on.
2: (laughs) The ship is destroyed, and I'm too weak to carry on my work as intergalactic space patrolman. I must seek out a deserving Earthling to pass on my battery of power. My power ring will find an honest and fearless one to take my place. i liked any comic books that took place in space like i was a big fan of fantastic four because they were always out in space like yeah. in humans you know i loved those guys that's what i liked about the legion and what i liked about green lantern corps like they were always out in space Wow. I mean, it's funny. I'm actually yeah. I've, I've finally gotten hold of the complete Blackest Night saga and I oh. just started reading it last night.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Blackest Night's great.
2: <laughs> Cuz that happened after I that, that happened right as I moved here so I never got any of those issues and I'm just starting to read it now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway,
0: uh... <laughs> Oh, well.
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, Enough of that.
1: To bring it back to interview, if you don't mind, um, <laughs> yes. the bubblegum record that you guys put out, Ooey Gooey Chewy Kablooey, which is fantastic. Do you want well, to you. You tell us a little bit about the making of that record? Sure. Apparently,
2: and I don't remember any of this, but everyone assures me that this is the case, I joked about doing a bubblegum album for like a decade. Yeah. <laughs> I said yes, maybe one yeah, day the Dirt Bombs will finally cut the bubblegum album. I never meant it. I don't remember even saying it. But everyone assures You're me like, that for years I joked about doing a bubblegum album. Well, finally we reached a you know I reached a point where it's like okay, what do we do now? Like what do I do? What's the the next album gonna? What's the next concept? Here's the thing that every Dirt Bombs record is a concept album sure. because I have a notoriously short attention span <laughs> and. Mm. I just am not interested in hearing a band play for seventy six minutes, which is the length of a CD. Mm-hmm. I just don't care. Like no, there, there's probably less than a half a dozen groups who I would listen to for that long. And so I figure, well, if I don't, if I'm not willing to put up with band for that long, for that longer than forty minutes, why should anybody else? Why should I subject somebody to that? Sure. I wouldn't want to listen to it. I'm not going to make somebody else listen to it. <laughs>
0: Well, so like original <laughs> LPs used to be about forty minutes anyway, about that yeah. much, and then CDs kind of changed the game.
2: So. Exactly. Yeah. And for, and four. You know, I'm a I'm a singles person. Mm-hmm. I, I like I enjoy forty fives and EPs more than I enjoy a full length LP, unless it's unless it's great. But in any in any event, in order to make an L, because I like singles so much, LPs are a huge pain in the neck. Yeah, and so my reasoning when I you know as far as the dirt bombs goes, my reasoning is that the record's got to be interesting enough for me to make if I'm gonna make somebody else listen to it. Sure. So to that to that end, every album has had a different subject matter. You know, like we're gonna you know Mm got a punk album. of Solra covers. thing a lot which really burns my tail but my description of the dirt bombs is you know a band that never actually heard rock and roll but read about it a lot
0: (laughs) that's that's interesting yeah so it's it's almost covering rock and roll in a way yes yeah
2: yeah because you know that but that harks back to the you know the idea that the entire thing was an art project from the beginning (laughs) yeah you know so so the bubblegum album was just another part of another part of that. It's another type of rock and roll that you would have read about Mm-hmm. if you were reading about rock and roll. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was what that was. And then so I went and cut the album here in New York.
4: Feeling kind of strange. upside down
0: I have a burning question on the tip of my tongue here, and it, is, and it is, what band would you listen to for 70 minutes? <laughs> that's, you that's know, a good question. If it's a short list, you know, it's probably, you know.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's a real short
0: list. <laughs> <laughs> um. why, all right, because. why don't we start with the White Album, the, the, the Beatles double album, that's about 70 minutes or so. How about that one?
2: Oh, a oh, oh, White Album?
0: Yeah. <laughs> all
2: right. I have not listened to the White Album all the way through, probably since 1979, <laughs> 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 when I liked it. Oh, no. It's actually, my. It's uh, the White Album is my, my favorite Beatles record, yeah. actually. Yeah. I, know, I mean, it's Revolver and the White Album, and then everything else is kind of down in the pile there
0: Anything, anybody else any other <laughs> fandoms of you I know we're putting you on the spot here but you know uh,
2: no Funkadelic there's probably the only all I, can, right. I can sit and listen to Funkadelic all day
0: we go that's two yeah. that's a and, list
2: um, let's see who else <laughs> right this minute john coltrane No, that isn't strictly yeah. true probably joe henderson right now before john coltrane
0: oh yeah well i mean if coltrane was the choice that would be a, a great choice as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah Well, there's there's
2: so few because i just like i said my attention span just doesn't run that long yeah there are things i get mm. fascinated by and I, I might get into a rut but even a rut only lasts about an hour
0: right <laughs> I remember you, uh, there's a quote from you from, oh, there's a Dutch documentary James and I had watched
2: when, when we were. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, where you, where you, you the, made the mention famous, of uh, it. The I nearly broke my ankle right before they rolled camera. Really? What, what happened? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they came to get me, and I fell down the stairs and wrecked my ankle. Oh, no. And, and uh, what, you, what you can't see in the documentary is that I'm on crutches during the entire thing.
1: Oh, my gosh. They
2: edited really? out part of me walking, like hobbling around on crutches. <laughs> oh,
1: no. Is that why you're playing uh, drums on Rated X? That's why my
2: bowling in that thing is so bad. Uh, I come from a family of pro am bowlers, and I bowled like a 76 in that yeah. documentary. well we'll, I we'll tell we'll my take family your, what had happened.
0: We'll take your word for that one, you know. <laughs> excuses, excuses. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I
2: couldn't I tell my dad. My dad actually asked me where i had been all day, and I told him everything except, oh, and I went bowling. Yeah. I couldn't face him. Because <laughs> <laughs> he would have said, what'd you bowl? You know, and I was—I couldn't tell him I bowled less than hundred that day.
0: It is embarrassing. embarrassing. It would
2: have been a family shame. Now wait, do
0: you do the whole spin and everything? Because let me tell you, I've been—I look at people who do that spin with their wrists, and I think, my God, that looks so effortless when they do it. And then whenever I try and spin it, I crush some five-year-old's head in with a with a twelve-pound bowling
2: ball. Well, like I said, I come from a family of pro bowlers. My dad taught me how to do that. Oh man! How
0: no? Okay. Uh, well, all right. We're off on another tangent. But how long? All right. So let's talk about real time learning. How many outings before you were okay at the spin? Because that's pretty tough.
2: He started teaching me that when I was eleven, and I was probably not good at it until I was twenty-two. That
4: is so much wow. time. Wow. Man, that's so much time. <laughs> That
0: is way too much time. I am never going to do this again. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just Yikes. going straight from now on, guy. I'm so sorry. I can't do ten years. I can't do that.
2: But I just it took it took time, but I got good at it, and it was doubly difficult for me because my dad was left handed.
0: Okay, yeah. So you're, wow. I mean, you could look like look in a mirror, sort of thing, I guess, watching right. him do it. Like I don't know. I just had to
2: look what look at what he was doing and then try and do it backward
1: man it probably helped when he needed to teach you how to tie a tie though <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah i have learned how to tie a tie three times in my life and i've forgotten it each time now <laughs> you, you
0: and me both i, I don't think i'm ever, it's clip-ons forever for me with that
4: yeah
1: you have enough dirt bombs members previous members to create a bowling league has Is that serious? ever crossed your mind <laughs> Yes,
2: there are enough ex-Dirt Bombs to form five (laughs) other bands called the Dirt Bombs. Oh,
0: oh, hey, speaking of ex-Dirt Bombs, you can answer this for us. Patrick Keeler, when did he play with the Dirt Bombs? Or did he? He did. He did?
2: Yes, he played with the Dirt Bombs towards the end of our 2006 tour. He did the last half dozen shows. Wow, nice. Pantano had a cat that fell ill while we were on the road, and he blazed home, and um, Keeler was in the opening band.
0: Huh. Hey, wait, what? In 2006? That that was Rack and tour time. What was he doing?
2: Um, it was. Uh, they hadn't really happened yet. Okay, alright, so maybe yeah. earlier? It might have been 2000. No, no, wait, I'm sorry. It might have been 2003. Oh, okay. It was okay. sometime between okay. 2003 and 2006.
0: So Keeler sat in.
4: Good evening with the Dirt Bombs.
1: What do you think he bowls you think he bowls like a 107 <laughs> he's probably pretty good now
0: <laughs> yeah now if you had to pick nick and you're on the island from lost then you're trapped there forever and you can do music or you can bowl <laughs> uh, i'm gonna have to pick music okay all right i was ho- i was sort of hoping all you right. would say that but i would also have been happy with the other answer too i
2: think <laughs> <laughs> Right, you know the the Dirt Bombs. We've had a, a, a couple of sets that we've done over the years, but I really like to I, I like to fly by sea, Like the next the next Dirt Bombs tour, I plan to learn a whole lot more songs, so it's more or less different every night. Keeps it keeps it interesting. Yeah. yeah, it keeps it interesting.
4: We are all looking forward to the next Dirt Bombs tour. We've been talking about that before you called in. Like <laughs> how excited.
2: Next year, you guys are going to you guys are going to love this. Next year uh, marks the twenty fifth anniversary. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. There's yes. It's only going to be a 25th anniversary tour.
0: Nice. Nice. That's nice. awesome.
4: That is very nice.
0: <laughs> but I have a question here and I would be remiss on our third band records podcast to not ask of what your first impressions of a young John Gillis was. Uh, when he when he emerged from the primordial ooze into Detroit. Can you tell us what your first impression of Jack White was?
2: All right, I'll tell you. Uh,
0: my <laughs> first
2: impression, because I I don't actually recall when we first met, but my first memory is that he drove to my house, him and Meg drove to my house, and I, I forget why now, but they told me that they'd driven, uh, I used to live on a street called Burwood. Mm-hmm. And they driven across town on Burwood. And Detroit's a really big city. Like, yeah. you, know, it's, you, could, you could fit San Francisco, Boston, and Manhattan inside the city limits of Detroit and there'd still be room to drive around them. Oh, my God. So it probably uh. took him the better part of 90 minutes to get from his house to my house.
4: <laughs>
2: on, on this one street, which I've never driven from his house to my house. And, uh, and I thought, Man, that's crazy! <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think I said something. About this kid's probably out of his mind. Yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah. And that's the first memory of Jack. I remember thinking, man, that's weird.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That tracks with everything we've ever heard about him. You know, he's like direct. <laughs> you know, directions are for the week. I'm trying to work. I gotta work hard to put myself in this car box and drive across town.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that's the first, that's the first.
0: Hey, nice. James, you mentioned the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, right?
2: Yes. That they they, they
0: had opened for you? Yeah. Yes,
4: they did.
2: (laughs) They they returned the favor by letting us open for them. That's right. (laughs) (laughs)
4: And the
0: 5678s, maybe.
2: Oh, the 5678s, yes. Yeah. Good friends of ours. In fact, we, we talked briefly this past year about my producing their next album.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yes. Nice. Uh, speaking of which, uh what do you got coming down the pike you got any new uh stuff you want to plug <laughs> um
2: nothing out yet although I think I'm planning to do a dirt bomb single this year awesome
0: yeah there that's something to plug maybe
2: one out but it, because it's just me it'll be on band camp or something so
1: <laughs> well
2: <laughs> <laughs> it'll still be the dirt bombs yeah. wolf Manhattan is recording this year also mm-hmm.
0: That's fantastic. We'll look forward to more music from you. We've been enjoying, James and I, you know, really getting to know your catalog, and obviously Kate has been a fan of yours for quite some time.
1: I'm assuming that the label you dislike that's associated with the Dirt Bombs is garage rock. Is that the genre that you dislike? Yes, that, people that people is say, the, oh, the dirt word, Bombs yes. are garage.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. okay can you explain why i mean i feel like i love garage rock i love the 60s garage rock i don't really consider what happened in the 90s always garage rock but <laughs> i just i love it nonetheless so th- sure. would you explain your aversion
2: yeah uh, yeah sure i i wanted you know because the Gories were a garage band yeah very distinctly very definitely a garage band i wanted to play rock music in another i you want know, another rock band that didn't have that association you know you know mm-hmm. it wasn't that i just like i, I i'm, I'm kind of with you on the whole 90s garage rock like it's not really you know i mean having grown up listening to 60s garage rock anything nothing else if it anything that sound, doesn't sound like that isn't really garage rock but yeah i just want i wanted you know uh, as i said earlier the dirt bombs i was an art project so the idea yeah. that it would just be lumped in with bands that we had nothing in common with really bothered me as i've gotten older you know as this the years have gone on i've gotten less concerned with it really but also i know that that's because anybody who's listened to the catalog knows that that's ah, not really garage rock right, right.
0: <laughs> so it's sort of an unfair people come
2: up to us, like i would say it and people would come up to us you know and be like yeah i thought you guys were a garage band but now that i've seen you play i i know better Okay. And, and it would go, like, what would happen is we'd play a show, like, we play a random show in the city, and then, you know, the, the guys, the, the, and, and all, like, the, the Gorys fans and Jack White fans and, like, Garage Rockers would be in the audience, and we'd play the show, like, the first time we'd be there. Uh-huh. And then he'd go home and be like, I don't know. I thought they were cool, <laughs> but they're not really cool.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and they'd duck their, their weird friend like, you might like them. So the next time we played, they'd bring their weird friend you know? Right. And then the next time we play, the garage rockers wouldn't be there, but all their weird friends would show up. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then by the fourth or fifth show, we have our audience. <laughs> okay, there you go. Okay.
1: The Dirt Bombs have a reputation for live performances you guys are known for having some really great live performances thank you
2: i pride we pride ourselves on it yeah
1: (laughs) Uh, what is the best show you could remember and what is the worst show you can remember
2: (laughs) i can tell you both of those because they are etched into my brain oh god (laughs) um i'll take the worst show first (laughs) because the best show actually sounds like the worst show at first (laughs) the worst show uh was in zaragoza spain where we were playing it was the last show of the tour and we had pushed our gear past the point where it needed maintenance all of it Mm. and we were playing a place that had no ventilation it's central spain it's probably 103 degrees inside the club Oh man. We're sweating like racehorses and everything starts to fail. Oh no. Now we we're professionals,
1: <laughs> so we you know, we believe in multiple redundancy. <laughs> yeah, the two drummers thing, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I have three guitars, thing, yeah. Troy's <laughs> got two
2: basses, Co's okay. got two basses, and, you know, there's multiple there's extra drums, there's extra cymbals. Yeah. Everything starts to fail. We start breaking drum heads, we start breaking strings. I got down to like, and, but we have again, we have sets like we, we have song choices like there's a fork. Oh, I broke this string. Okay, well, that means we can't do these songs. We can do these songs. Mm-hmm. Oh, Troy broke a string. Well, we can't do these songs, but we can do these songs kind of thing. So we're working our way through the, the forks. All right, that's true. We broke a string. I broke another string. I got down to two strings on over three guitars. I had two (laughs) strings left on one guitar.
3: I'm giving it all, she's God, Captain.
4: If I push it any harder, the whole thing will blow.
2: And, you know, and the audience is kind of standing there looking at us, and we're just like, sorry. (laughs) 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 At the the end of it, it was so horrible. Like, they weren't even applauding. Uh, By the end of the show, they weren't even applauding us anymore. We're just like, all right, we're done. Uh, It was was totally demoralizing and we and we left, like, we just sort of packed up and split, it was the worst show I ever
0: played. Well, I mean, you guys could have, like, uh, <laughs> emptied out the tip jar and, you know, played some Memphis Jug Band covers, and you know, just... <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, we were just so done, by the time, you know, we, we were just so done, it was like, I can't play, I just don't want to go on oh, anymore. Wow. Um, but we managed to play about an entire set's worth of stuff. We got through our, our full, uh, you know, a full set of material, but it was all horrible. It was very dispiriting, but at the, at the end of it, we, uh, two kids came up to us and said, oh, the show's great, blah, blah, blah. And we, we gave him a broken symbol and half a <laughs> bottle of Jack Daniels. And, and they went nice. away happy. <laughs>
4: that,
2: was, that, was, that was that one. The, two, the, the best show, the previous best show, was 2005, I think, in the Mud Club in Berlin, which was a really great show. But the best show, I don't know, no, it was 2003, the best show to date was 2005 and it was also in Spain it was actually in Barcelona wow. uh, we were playing the Primavera Festival and we were in a tent which uh, is relevant in just a moment okay. but before that while we were doing sound check the killers mm-hmm. who were playing after us pulled up while we were doing sound check and their manager started telling us how great they were and he goes, oh, the, the killers are amazing. You guys, oh, you're all right. But man, the killer's going to knock your dicks in the dirt and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, like, he insulted our manager. No. He insulted oh, our man. gear. Oh. Which, you know, I mean, he just, he went on and on and on about how great the killers were and how, you know, how we were going to, we were gonna have nothing but respect for these guys after they blah, 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 this, this, and that, and the other thing. And he absolutely f***ing enraged us. And it came time for us to go on. Now they're going on after us, right? It came time for us to go on. And right before we went on stage, the sky opened up. And everybody, the the tent filled up because people wanted to get out of the rain. So so there was 2,500 people. (laughs) We basically had a sold-out show, 2,500 people. And this guy had worked us, not having no idea, this guy had worked us into an absolute frothing frenzy. We, before he we went on stage, we, wow. we went on stage, we just kind of looked at him and said, "You know what you got to do, right? You know what we got to do." Yep. Whoa. So, so.
0: Well, it sounds like you're describing like D-Day or something. Like this is insane. Yeah. yeah.
2: By the end of our set, we were bleeding. <laughs> Half of our gear was smashed, Flinders, My amp was on fire because I burned the transformer. So it was there was there was there was like a little tiny lick of flame coming out the back of an amp of a, a hundred watt high watt amp that I had just I had just destroyed electronically. And the people were absolutely losing their minds.
0: Oh my god, it's sounds oh man, the
2: place had gone insane. Yeah, and. The killers couldn't even look at us. <laughs> they were just like, nice. oh my god, we have to follow that. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: <Wow>. <laughs> that revenge is sweet.
2: I told the rest of the band, I said, there are times when I wonder why I bother. <laughs> 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 Nights like this, yeah. That's why I bother? Damn, oh, wow. it was the single best show we ever put on. And and after that show, the next time we went to Spain, we were actually on a TV show. Wow, like we landed a slot on some TV show because of that performance.
1: That's awesome. Now, did they tell you to create explosions and that they have room for pyrotechnics and things for? <laughs> um, <I'm> sh- <laughs> Maybe, well, first aid crews at the ready. It Technic's under a tent would have been a bad idea. Yeah,
0: I think so. I think so. I mean, I would point out, that raises a good question, both of your stories ended in destroyed equipment, so I think you yeah. might have a problem, Nick. <laughs> we
2: have, well, the dirt bombs are extremely hard on gear. Yeah. When, we're, when we were yeah. touring all the time, I had three sets of gear. Wow. Um, I had one set in the van, mm-hmm. one set in the repair shop, and one set at home, and I would rotate them out every, time, every chance I got. Wow. Whatever huh. was in the van went to the repair shop. Everyone was at home. Went in the van, you know, like that, and yeah. then just kept it going.
0: That's the way to do it, I guess. It's,
2: we're, yeah. we're real tough on we're real tough on gear, but that's part that's the price we pay for the state show. Well, you they, they we uh, want the high flying act; is stuff's going to get busted right. occasionally.
0: They cut you, Detroit guys, from a tough cloth. There, that's uh... a.
2: <laughs> <laughs> was John
1: Baker your go to guy for Spain, or was that just the Australia tour? That's
2: just Australia. Okay. Yeah, Australia, New Zealand. Um, I, Mr. Uh, Pastor, right? Him a phone call, actually. Oh, do you? Yeah, he's been trying to get the Gores to come down there, and uh, we just can't seem to make it work. Maybe this summer there'll be... There will be some festivals, so the glories might wind up in Australia or something later on this year.
0: Well, as a consolation prize for him, he can always just come on our show and talk about stuff and bowling for a while. Like oh, he, he's got stories. Yeah, we would want to hear him. We we had heard from uh, Bruce Brand about this guy when we <laughs> when we interviewed Bruce, and uh, he said he used to call him Mr. Pastry, and uh, and he had some he had some funny stories about him. Yeah. <laughs> All of that is true, by the way. All of oh, absolutely.
4: Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, sorry. All right, sorry. Mr. Pastry.
0: <laughs> oh no! I think I might have got Bruce in trouble. Uh oh. Yeah. No, no. Please quote. Please
1: quote him on that. Um, no, 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 no. It's fine. No, Bruce, Bruce is not lying to you. <laughs> I do have
0: one more quick other question. We have been racking our brains trying to figure this out. We have no idea who E
2: Wolf is. <laughs>
1: But we all want to know.
2: Yeah, so I'm we. I going to tell you me. what his name is. He's he's been in a few bands okay. around Detroit. Okay. But yeah, E Wolf. is his name. It's been his name as long as I've known him.
0: Fair enough. Really? It's like a superhero <laughs> name. <here.
2: Drum>? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one word. Like yeah, E Wolf is one word.
0: <laughs> we found that it more often than not, it takes some digging to find some of this stuff out and to get a little more insight on the people who were there at that time. And so we really appreciate you shedding some light on it We, uh, where you can. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Happy to do so. Yeah.
1: I am so, so happy and thankful that you joined us on this call, Mick. You have no idea how, how happy you've made, made with us. And I believe Kate as well. She's smiling. Uh, she's beaming. Kate is beaming right now. Yeah,
4: this is, I mean, this is the best surprise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, Jay. I'm glad you guys had
0: a good time. Yes. Don't be a stranger.
2: I would ordinarily be live tweeting this except that I <laughs> I had to move rooms so I was not able to live tweet the interview here. <laughs> uh,
0: I think that I think that makes it dead tweeting. I think you're dead tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> we're such big fans of yours. Thank you so much. And hey, have a great evening. It sounds like you got a lot of fun stuff planned for tonight. You were just, you just got up. You're moving around. It sounds like you got a lot going on.
2: alright <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go Exciting evening of listening to records I think, right now.
0: <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Take care, Mick. Thank you so much. You too. Bye bye. Thank you
4: guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Good night.
1: What's going on? Oh man, what an episode! Two great interviews. Two amazing talents. Love it. Let's get on to some outs. Let's do. Uh, let's do all Facebook, eh? We'd like to give a shout-out to Art Neely, Crystal Sawyer, Shay Reeves, Luis Ireland, Samantha R.M. Little. Thank you guys so much. J.R. Candelario, Brett Schiller, Mitch L., Ken Maynard. You guys are the best. Thank you guys so much for liking Paige and our posts and uh, following us, uh, so we, we greatly appreciate it. And we'd also like to give it some, some shout-outs to... Some people who are with us day in, day out, talking to us. We've got Andre Ice Cold Lime Man. We've got Jeremy Riles keeping us on those rails. We've got My Oh Me, It's Me Oh My. We've got I See You Over There, Eileen Corsano. Kate McCoy, The Bones of the Operation. Ben, The Beer Man, Blues Carnes. Callie Durga, Our Third Person in Spirit Every Week. Adrian King, The Punk Rock Queen. The Red Red Rain, Prosper. Amy Hart, The Heart of the Operation. Eric Andrew Dodson over here. Ha <laughs> it's L O L two We've got David Popo Po 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 Po. We've got SA franca What does that mean? We've got Yvette Wilkins, she's Wilkin on Sunshine. As always, we've got Brendan and Smith. We've got Brian Walter be nicer to me. There's no right opinion for you here, go away. And the Brett three killed my Garski. I get a little less sing-songy with it every time. And if you'd like to be one of those shout-outs, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can find us on Twitter at thirdmencasttumblr, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com, WordPress, where we host our show And show notes, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. We've got our Gmail where you can send us some listener questions. If you ask it, we will answer it. Thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Pippa. Pippa hosts our show. It is a wonderful platform. uh, So you can find us on there. Just search The Third Men and you will find us there. Also find us on YouTube. Search The Third Men Podcast on there. We do some animations and visualizers and such as well as feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. It greatly helps our visibility to uh, new prospective listeners, and we'd, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to us on there. That would be fantastic. We'd also like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help with our theme song, as well as Susanna Roundtree for the wonderful intros and outros of our program. And I think I will leave you guys here with a cliffhanger of what is going to be happening in next episode. It's very exciting. We had these two interviews in this best of, but we've got a brand new interview for you lined up for next week. Paul will be back. He will be here. I will be here. And so will Co-Melina will be here as well. I hope you enjoy it. It's going to be it. It's a doozy of an interview. She is just fun to talk to, and we hope you guys enjoy that. She's a dirt bomb. She's a part of the knockouts. She took the photos on the first white stripes album. She is a talent, a a tour de force and uh, you guys are going to love it. So, until then though, as always, I will be looking for a home to get away from my puppet cuz he is he is just annoying the crap out of me. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, Wooden James, I know I know. Get him Get him out. I need a home away from him. Does somebody have, like, Craigslist? I need a, I need a place. Get me away from him. Well, see you next time. Bye.
0: For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at ThirdMenCast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Episode 78, Supplemental Audio. (gasps) Uh
4: Uh-oh. What happened? It's all over her back. Uh-oh.
0: Oh. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh. Oh. Oh, Oh, this is... That's gonna be a washed comforter. (laughs) Just put her down, it's fine. Oh we're, oh god ah oh, jesus uh...